Welcome again, everyone, this morning. It's great to have you here. I preached a few, I don't know, feels like just a few weeks ago. It was probably longer than that, about generosity. And not a couple weeks after that, you had your uh, Leadership Appreciation Day. And all I can say is the outpouring of the generosity of this church that I have received is beyond anything I could expect uh, or deserve. And we have been so blessed to be part of this church. Um, We've received so much from you all. And I just want to thank you for that and for your generosity. I know a lot of people put something on Facebook, and I did not. um, Intended to a few times. So here I am. Thank you for your generosity. Um, It's been just real honest moment here. It's been a little bit difficult for me to mute my phone. It says it's muted. Let's just put it far away. Oh, was it yours? Okay. (laughs) Clearly, we're married. All right. Um, It's been a little difficult honestly, for me to step into the calling of being a pastor. Um, it probably wasn't, wouldn't be my first pick of things to do with my life. It wasn't really even what I felt like God's calling on my life was, maybe in a sense, but I just didn't quite picture it like this, quite frankly. Some of y'all can relate to that, how God um, works in mysterious ways. And calls us really out of our comfort zone or maybe what we would have chosen uh, in some ways to do with our life. But that to say, not to complain, say that you all, I just can't imagine being part of a body that is more supportive, more generous, um, could make it a better experience to be a pastor. And so I want to um, thank you for that. You are amazing. With, of course, the exception of DK, who is really difficult to get along with. No, just kidding. DK is a huge blessing, too. I mean, not huge, but he's, he's a blessing. Um, <laughs> so, you're a big, no, you're, yeah, you're a blessing. Let's leave it, leave it, you're not as big of a blessing as you used to be. No, you're as big of a uh, never mind. Okay. I appreciate you a lot. I really do. Um, that you let me pick on you, and eventually maybe you'll learn not to ask me to preach. And until then, the war is on. Um, pandemic blessings. How many of you have experienced pandemic blessings in the last few months? Speaking of generosity, it occurred to me after I preached that sermon that I don't think any of us that, that I'm aware of, not a person in this church, lost their job when a lot of people around us did. Not only that, I think most of us probably have more work through this time rather than less. I'm not sure if that's all good or bad. Sometimes I feel a little cheated because I've been buried alive with work. Um, But it struck me, I said a few weeks ago, that that money is a magnifier of what's in our heart. And my initial response, I'm sure this is not the same for any of you, but my initial response with that extra income was not generosity. It was, oh, now I can finally do this or that or the other thing that I've been waiting to do. It was a magnifier of what was in my heart. So God likes to do that to us, so... Next week will probably be interesting for me, too. Davey was excellent this morning. I really appreciated what he had to share. Um, Fortunately, I am sanctified to the point that it doesn't bother me in the least to try to speak right on the heels of that. So here goes. But we want to look at the, the grand view of the gospel this morning and... Maybe a bigger picture. Um, been thinking a lot the last 
couple of months or, or weeks about what is the gospel exactly? What does it mean to me? What is it to me personally? And I guess God has been impressing on me that it's so much bigger, so much more than what I have um, often thought of it as. And at the same time, it's so much simpler and less complicated than what I often make it. I think we tend to relegate, or I tend to relegate, the gospel to a moment in my past. I look at it as, as salvation and forget that it's how it's relevant to my future and my present as well. Andy talked this morning about the good news of our inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, that would be another great title, honestly, for the message today. The good news of our inheritance. C.S. Lewis says Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Back up here. Where am I? Okay. Uh, this must be either true or false. Now, there is, are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Tim Keller said the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. It is both simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. Indeed, even the angels never tire of looking into it. Humans which are by no means angels, however. So rather than con contemplating it, we argue about it. The gospel is not an afterthought or a hastily constructed plan to salvage what we destroyed. It is the master plan of God perfectly laid out in his infinite foreknowledge before the world was formed. The gospel is not an afterthought or a hastily constructed plan to salvage what we destroyed. It is the master plan of God perfectly laid out in his infinite foreknowledge before the world was formed. The word gospel very literally means good news or glad tidings. Why don't you stand and... Shake hands with someone beside you. We just came through one message, and I know you had a song, but um, okay. Stretch a little bit. All right. You can remain standing, or you can sit. I'm going to read a good bit here from the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your presence would be with us today as we look into your word, Lord, as we look at the incredible news of the story of redemption. Pray that you would enable me this morning to bring heaven to earth, to bring a glimpse of eternity into this morning. I pray that you would reveal eternal truth this morning to our hearts, that you would make it specific and personal to us in Jesus name. Amen. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they asked, said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jews' rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to the temple in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for my house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was at Jerusalem and at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You can be seated. To have a right understanding of the gospel, we must 
obviously first start with a right understanding of God. And the first thing I want to say this morning is that the focal point of the story is God. We often think that God is here and the gospel is focused on us, on redeeming us. The moment we make the gospel human-centric, it becomes a part of the very problem God chose to redeem. So I want to just take just a moment and look at who is God and what are some of his attributes. I'm going to go through this quickly. We have God. Outside of God, there's nothing. I wouldn't depict God as a circle because God is not contained. But the reason I chose that is because I want you to see some of the things that are part of who he is, many of his attributes. So if we look at this picture of God and all of the incredible things that he is, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. And then if we can zoom in, if you can picture with me, and in the nature of God, eternity exists. No beginning, no end. So we're going to look at the eternal attributes of God, the fact that he is without beginning or end. Before the very beginning, he was already there. And I want to look uh, three, if we zoom in further, so, so the nature of God, eternity, on this vast expanse of no beginning, no end. Picture with me that we zoom into the line, which again, it shouldn't be depicted as a line, but the, the, the line of eternity. And we're going to look at some of I'm just picking out three this morning that attributes of the nature of God that I think we see so beautifully expressed through the story of the gospel. These three are going to uh, encapsulate others, overlap, probably leave a few important ones out. Um, If it feels like I'm oversimplifying or if it feels like I'm desperately reaching to try to understand some of this, I am. Um. We are humans here trying to comprehend God, after all. We are the proverbial blind men trying to comprehend the elephant. And I think I just proved my point by comparing God to an elephant. So, the first attribute is that God is an eternal king. And with an eternal perspective. His plan, his kingdom, his goodness... We could use 100 huge Christianese words to try to describe it, but you guys might not understand them, and I for sure wouldn't. So we're going to leave it at this. One of the big ones I want to look at today through this is the value God places on choice versus coercion. One of the most significant marks of truth is that it invites It beckons, it calls, it draws. Because love is not love without free choice. We as humans have a hard time grasping that. The value that God places on choice. God places an unbelievably high value on it because it's the foundation of love. And love is who God is. The mark of darkness or of a cult is coercion, force, demand, manipulation, condemnation. There was that one time as a teen when I, well, there was more than one, when I argued my parents into letting me do the thing I wanted to do. This one really stands out in my memory because they did not, think I should do. I don't even remember what it was I wanted to do anymore, but I knew that it had to happen, and they did not think it was okay. And we went around and around and around, which did not normally happen at our house. And finally they said, okay. Go ahead. Talk about taking the fun out of it. 
I mean, it was just like, really? You know, now I finally got what I wanted. And I couldn't enjoy it for a second. Because they had not actually given me anything. There is no value in coercion. There was no love involved. The second one, and I think I got my slide messed up here. See how that works? Is a just judge. It'll come together at the end, maybe. And that is the perspective of legality that we want to look at today. I think it's something we often overlook is the legal perspective of what the gospel is. The spiritual absolutes and legalities of the gospel. The third that I want to look at is the personal perspective. God of, as a personal friend, a faithful lover, a relational being. So I want to follow these three threads through some key events, um, through time. And six, six events we're going to look at. And we want to follow these three threads and try to, as humans, look at the gospel from these different angles as we go through time and look at some, some key events. Um, I think it's going to be really fascinating. The first event is the design, a perfect kingdom. The eternal perspective of that is that God created the world out of nothing. This eternal God created the world out of nothing. It was an unrivaled, it was a display of God's creative goodness, an unrivaled, creative, glorious world displaying his goodness and his perfection. And he created man and set him on the earth. He said, let us create man in our likeness. I'm going to get to that in a minute. The legal perspective on this is that God gave man autonomy, free choice, and he gave him authority. He said, you are to have dominion over the earth. He gave them the legal authority of ruler underneath him on the earth. The personal perspective of this event is that God wants a relationship with you. He said, let us create man in our likeness. Do you really grasp that? David did a good job of, of diving into that this morning. God specifically and personally created you because he wanted your friendship. I'm going to move to the next event, which was the rebellion, a kingdom divided. The eternal perspective we see is that man, the eternal being, chooses the lie. The introduction of evil, of opposition, of rebellion. What happens on the legal dimension at that point is that man takes the authority that God gave him and he signs it over to Satan. Now, I think we often feel like at this point, God should have stepped in and said, Satan, I'm going to squish you because that wasn't what you were supposed to do. But it was man's free choice. Just because man gave away what was completely his does not give God the right to go and take it back. When you believe or agree with a lie, this is the, the spiritual law. When you believe or agree with a lie, you give power. You give authority to the liar. On a personal perspective. Looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? On a personal perspective, God makes a promise. The serpent is going to bruise, bruise your heel. But through you, this human that just completely screwed it all up, Messed it all up. I'm going to bring someone who will crush the serpent's head. 
Event three, for lack of a better term, I call the waiting, a world in chaos. And throughout the period of the, of the next couple of thousand years, man demonstrates again and again that his very best efforts only demonstrate his total depravity and complete inability to save himself again and again and again and again. God brought the Abrahamic covenant. You're all familiar with it. That through the seed of Abraham and through this covenant with Abraham, I'm going to create a people that is set apart, that is sanctified, that will will bring my heart of goodness and blessing to the entire world. It worked out perfectly right from the day one, didn't it? Not exactly. The Mosaic Covenant, which God brought again to be developed, show his justice, his laws. And that's part of the legal perspective here where God established who he is in justice. God proved repeatedly that he was in the right, that he was always in the right. And the other side of that is he was calling men to justice and to truth. On the personal side, again, it looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? When you look at what man was, how man was responding, it looks pretty bleak. On the personal side, God reveals his love, his compassion, his desire again and again through the Old Testament, through the prophets, calling his people back to himself with long suffering, with kindness, when again and again he should have wiped us off the map. The rescue. The hero appears. The eternal perspective is that the God of eternity steps into time. The king brings his kingdom to earth. Philemon, sorry, Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the death, point of death, even death on a cross. Luke 4.18, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, enter by the narrow gate. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. He healed He performed miracles. God incarnate satisfies every requirement of justice. On the basis of his sinless humanity, he legally defeated sin. On the basis of his all-powerful deity, He conquers death. And the personal. God displays the depth of his love. Willing to leave the perfect riches of heaven. And crawl into the filth of our pig pen. There's nothing in our ability, in our imagination... That can even begin to comprehend the level of voluntary sacrifice that entailed. We shrink so many times at his call to us. 
we cannot begin to comprehend what he willingly and voluntarily took on because of the value he placed on you. And he demonstrated by his coming and by his life the great paradox that death is life, down is up. The poor, the meek, the disadvantaged get it all. And the even greater paradox, the great exchange, that he was willing to come and to say, I'll take all of your filth, all of this absolute abject disaster that the human race, that history has become, and I'll trade you that for my life, for my goodness, for my power. We move on to the commission, the kingdom of heaven on earth. And the eternal point of this is to bring heaven to earth, to reconcile man to God. The legal ramifications are that man's authority is restored in Christ. He bought it back because he lived perfectly. That is what gives us our call to action and to prayer. He said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth or loosed. Whatever you bind or loose in heaven will be bound or loosed. It's because we have the spiritual authority and dominion over the earth. And so God is sitting there with his heart of goodness and is longing, longing to pour it out on the earth. And he's asking us to unlock it. It's our territory. We get to pray his goodness out onto the earth. We get to live his goodness out onto the earth around us. Jesus multiplies the loaves. It's up to us to hand them out to the crowds. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And the personal perspective is that it's the outpouring of heaven through you. And it is the preparation, the seal of of the Holy Spirit that he has left with us in fulfilling this calling and in preparing us for future eternity with him. The restoration, the ruler is going to return. And in that moment, all of truth is going to be completely revealed and displayed. We're going to know him. As we're known. God's perfect kingdom will be restored. God will be declared completely right and perfectly good. The legal justice will be executed. Every wrong will be made right. Everything will be restored, redeemed. His salvation will be completed. The personal is the bride walks the aisle. And that's you and I. All is restored. Sickness, death, and separation are gone forever. Every question is answered. Events 7, 8, 9, and 10, we're just getting started. From there, that's just the beginning. That's the perspective that we need to look at this glorious gospel through. Heroes are not made in tragedy. They are revealed through tragedy. 
When tragedy strikes, something comes out of the hero that no one knew was in there. Therefore, man's sinfulness is not an eternal focal point in the story of the gospel. Because death will be swallowed in victory. From the perspective of eternity, all of the mess, chaos, and tragedy will only serve to make God's goodness look better. If Jesus hadn't needed to die, we wouldn't begin to see the depth of his love for us. Truth is eternal. That's one aspect of this I want to bring in. Contemporary culture says truth is subjective and relative. Most of us sitting here have come through a period in our lives most of us somewhat recently, where we have questioned so much of what we believed was absolute truth. That's not a bad thing. In fact, I think for most of us, it's been a very healthy thing. But in that quest for truth, and in that questioning of truth, do not, dare not, fall for the lie that truth is subjective. Objective, absolute truth is no different and no less now than it was 200 or 2,000 years ago or before the dawn of time, for that matter. And truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. That is the foundation of our faith, a person we know. It's really easy for us to get disillusioned with a belief system, with an institution, a structure, but not with a person who is eternally perfect, eternally just, eternally loving. So ask the questions and allow the edifices of man's construct to be shaken and to crumble. But anchor your faith deep in the rock, Jesus Christ. Choices are eternal. Jesus called his disciples and said, follow me. And isn't, really doesn't the crux of it all come down to choosing to follow for us? Isn't that where it gets real? We hear a lot about repentance, and I am not in any way minimizing the need for repentance. But I think sometimes we get so consumed with turning away from our sin that we forget to turn to Christ and follow him. He didn't tell them. Uh, I think many times... Repentance should be more of a loyalty change, a change in masters, a turning from myself, from Satan to Jesus, instead of trying to turn from sin and figure out a way to live better. He didn't tell his disciples to become consumed with looking for random ways to die. He asked them to follow him to his cross. We talk about many good things. There's psychological things we can study as we learn to heal. There's um, healthy boundaries. There's learning to not hate ourselves. There's so many of these good things. There's uh, Enneagram was mentioned this morning. Ways of understanding who we are, how we function, what makes us tick. I'm not... Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that stuff is bad. But I will make the point. Be careful in that. Our flesh is incredibly adept at trying to find detours away from the cross. If I just understood myself a little better, then I wouldn't have to actually die. If I could just figure out... uh, some more counseling and better behavior modification and get myself back in control, I could avoid death. It doesn't work that way. Don't fall for it. It's called the cross. And I know everyone's at a different place. Some people need different um, types of help. It isn't one thing fits all, except it is one thing fits all, and that is the cross. 
we can choose to die to accept his death and to receive his life. So I don't know, there's probably nobody here today like me that finds yourself running from the cross in some area of your life. But my call to you today is to choose the cross today, to choose it again tomorrow. Maybe you're hiding under your fig leaves, whether it's lies, shame, condemnation, the history of terrible choices you've made in the past and where that has you stuck today or you think stuck. Open your heart to his love, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't chosen him for the first time. Today's the day to choose him, to give him that control of your life. Or maybe he's calling you to greater choices to follow him. Love or obedience. I think you can use those almost interchangeably here. And his choice led him to the cross and it kept him on the cross. He had the power to stop all of it, but he didn't. His love for his father compelled his choice. His love for you compelled his choice to follow through with it. And there in that moment on the cross, all of eternity comes together. He said, as often as you eat this bread, as you drink this cup, you will remember the past. You will, until I come, the future. It all comes together in that moment in his death, all of eternity. So through the story, again and again, God chooses us, even when we again and again choose to rebel. And so, how are your choices? Who are you choosing? I think so many times we convince ourselves that it's what we want to choose. It's actually who are you going to choose. He lived a lifetime of learning obedience and choosing the will of his father, which is what gave him the ability to ultimately make the most excruciating choice in history. So how are your choices? If the answer to that question is not as pretty as you think or wish it could be, I think the next question is, how is your love? Does your love for him compel your choices? How's your understanding of his love for you? God has gone all in on you. That's the thing that came to me again and again as I dug into this in studying. God has not held anything back. Nothing. He's gone 100, 200% for us. There's no reservations whatsoever in his heart about you. Can you grasp that? And in the light of these three perspectives that we're looking at this morning, the most absurd thing imaginable is to give him less than our all. So again, I don't know. Maybe he's touching something in your heart this morning. Let go. Choose to follow God, what is your calling, your will? How can I, with the expectation of my future inheritance, excuse me, with the expectation of my future inheritance, carry out the commission that you have placed on my life? Andy read Ephesians 1, which was he couldn't have known, but I wanted to close with Ephesians 3. Looking at it through these lenses, through these eternal perspectives, I think gives it so much, uh, just brings so much life to it. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.